This episode is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, and I've got some great news for you. 5.11 usually very generously offers the listeners of this podcast 15% off any of their purchases using the code SHIELD15. Well, going into Black Friday from November 26th to December 1st, they're offering you guys 25% off and a free patch if you use the code SHIELD25. So that's S-H-I-E-L-D-25 at 511tactical.com. You will get 25% off and a patch. Now, while you are looking through there, I urge you to look at some of the products that we've talked about in the last few episodes. From the lightweight Norris sneaker, a great alternative to the tactical boot, to the AMP backpack, um, the uniform selection that I've talked about. I'm going to throw one new piece of equipment in there as well. The Response XR2 flashlight, um, extremely light, or torch as I would say in England, um, very, very light and compact. The brightest bloody light I've ever seen in my life. Not only was is it great for illuminating things, it actually would have a great self-defense element to it as well because it's literally blinding. So not rated specifically to go into structure fires, but every other element of our job is a great light to have on your person. So as I mentioned before, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, 25 at 511tactical.com from November 26th to December 1st, and the rest of the year, Shield 15 will still get you your 15% off. Welcome, guys, to episode 257 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am very, very excited to bring to you retired fire captain Todd Edwards. Now, Todd is a veteran of the fire service. He is also the father of a son who is on the autism spectrum, and he realized that our community, police, fire, EMS, uh, hospital, really don't get a lot of education when it comes to interacting with patients with special needs. So he teaches a couple of classes. One is Breaking Barriers, where it discusses just that. Another one is No Fear Leadership. Um, so in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, but really do hone in on the differences between an average person that we interact with and maybe someone with Down syndrome or autism and how we can be better responders and also how he helps educate those people and their families on how to interact with us. So a great conversation. You will hear that it's actually a telephone recording. We did try twice over Skype and the gremlins were just not helping us out. So I apologize for the slightly worse quality of the recording, but I think it's just absolutely fine. Cleaned it up well, seemed to sound great. So as I always say, before we get to the interview, please take a moment, go to your podcast app and leave a rating. The more ratings we get, the more visible we are on the charts, therefore easier to find people that are looking for this kind of podcast. And then most importantly, share these amazing episodes. Every first responder on the planet needs to hear this one on how we interact with people with special needs. So the more you guys help me, the more you share, the more these amazing stories are going to get around the globe. So with that being said, introduced to you. Todd Edwards. Enjoy. Through, uh, after some technical difficulties, we will do take three. So again, Todd, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, I appreciate it. I really, really do. And uh, uh, our 
friend, uh, or mutual friend now, uh, Paul Gertis, who works here uh, in the city of Atlanta, and listening to some of the other podcasts you've done uh, has really been great and truly uh, uh, just a privilege and an honor to have an opportunity to share some uh, information with everybody today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Some great topics that we're going to be talking about. So very first question, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, today I'm at home and that's in uh, Cumming, Georgia, about 45 miles north of the city of Atlanta. Brilliant. All right. So I'd love to start at the very beginning. What was your, excuse me, where, where were you born and then what was your family dynamic like? Okay, well, that's uh, not not a whole lot to it in all reality. I was born actually in Dayton, Ohio. The fire service, my dad, uh, who recently passed, was my first fire chief uh, at 16 years old. So I pretty much have been in the fire service since the day I was born. Uh, Christmases, holidays, everything was around the volunteer fire company. That's that's all I've ever known my entire life, and uh, so now, of course, my uh, family, that's all they know is the fire service, and it's uh, just been, a, been an incredible adventure ever since I got into it, and I can't imagine doing anything else, so that's kind of where I'm at. I got hired with Atlanta back in 1988, and I did over 30 years with the city of Atlanta on the line, and now I've worked again for the city of Atlanta, and I do all the also development training, we're going to do some of the recruit training and and then uh, a lot of little side gigs and stuff like that. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Brilliant. All right. So you mentioned your dad was a, a firefighter. What about your mother? My uh, mother was a uh, nurse and uh, then she went into peer counseling for drug rehab as a nurse and, and counselor. And so pretty much uh, everything I've ever known has been based on some some form of help and public service to others. Beautiful. So that's a, that's why I love to ask about this early time. So you had um, a mother who was in the mental health and addiction realm way before probably most of us were even talking about it. So what what was your observation kind of going through those decades in the fire service? As far as having that background of, of your mother being in that in that environment and seeing um, the mental health effects of the job on the men and women that you serve with, it's it's interesting how I think uh, so much of the way things affect us today are so much different in the fire service, the mental health, the. Uh, obviously the substance abuse issues throughout our country today and how those things have just blossomed and changed and the way we examine them today compared to when I started, it wasn't even, it wasn't even discussed, uh, in all reality. If I was coming up, um, at, you know, at 16 years old, the only thing I knew was, you know, the, the bell went off and you jumped on the rig and you went, and you did your job and came back and went to the next job. But, Watching and, and learning from both my parents, um, you know, both from the EMS side, the, the paramedic side, the nursing side. Um, even then, it just it was almost, I don't want to say the word taboo, I guess, would be a good way to describe it. I'm not sure. But uh, when my mom started working more into the drug rehabilitation side of nursing, it was eye opening to me there because I didn't. I never thought about it. It just wasn't part of our life or part of our lifestyle. And it was interesting to see uh, the things that 
they didn't have access. There was no public information out there about drugs or um, addiction, things like that. So it's amazing how the fire service itself has changed uh, the way we approach our business on a day-to-day basis, especially when you're dealing with people with uh, a wide host of um, disabilities, mental health, and then obviously cognitive disabilities. Yeah. Now, what about your, from your perspective specifically, you know, we talk about mental health, we we talk about the depression, the anxiety and, and, you know, worst case suicide. And then we talk about the addiction. Usually it's, you know, cocaine, opiates. Um, what has been your observation of alcohol use in the first responder community? Uh, I think it's like every place else. Uh, you know, firefighters, police officers, public safety workers throughout this country are their first and foremost human beings and all of us have our daily things and one of the things I teach in officer development I try to remind all my company officers when I'm teaching classes that it's vital that you know we take we don't take anybody for granted and we remember that it's not just about that shift that 24 hour 48 hour shift it's all all our men and women have their personal lives and they they have personal issues going on and really up to us as a community in the fire service and public safety to uh, recognize that. It's not just the job that I think is affecting um, our, our members. I think it's a wide host of things outside the fire station, outside the uh, police cruisers that um, have a bearing on all these issues as well, whether it's alcohol, drugs, mental health, um, uh, PTSD. These are all things that are affecting our members, and I think as a as a service, we are not doing a good enough job in helping our members um, as well as we could have. I really do believe that that we there's more that needs to be done, and I'm glad that we're finally having some open conversations via social media and, and trying to get that word out that it's okay to go and talk to people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we just had a horrendous week this week. Um, Florida, we had. A firefighter murdered, which obviously is, is, you know, most likely separate from a mental health issue. We've had two suicides, one in, in my county here where I volunteer. And then I believe up where you are in Lafayette County, we had a suicide as well. So it's been a horrendous week for losing firefighters. Yeah, a very young lieutenant in Fayette County, Georgia, uh, recently uh, in the last several days took his life. examine these cases a lot closer and and not just, you know, um, one of the things that can be blustering, I think, for all of us is we just hear, we got to stop this, we got to stop this. Well, that's great to say we have to stop this, but now we need somebody to come up and we need to start actually discussing it and coming up with some answers to stop this. When a young man feels like he has to take his life to escape, we're not doing our job. We've got to do better than that. Well, you mentioned that you started um, you know, under your father at the age of 16. This is something that I I don't think we acknowledge very much because a lot of us work in full-time career departments. Um, but some of these volunteers are extremely young. And I've had young volunteers actually call me. You know, they, there's there's one young, young man who lost two of his fellow firefighters, his mentors, um, when he was still very young as a volunteer. So how did you deal with you know, what you saw and the stresses of the job when you were still, you know, basically a child. I, I can I, I really do believe that it's individually based. Uh, I had a very strong 
even though my parents were divorced, I had a, I had a very strong family network. Uh, are, and I really found that the volunteer community at the time, even though it was a combination department, is, you know, the volunteers, you know, when I first joined on, we were, uh, we weren't just working together. We literally lived, worked, played, uh, lived with each other. And we had the bad calls. Uh, at 16 years old, I experienced my first, you know, fire death. Uh, seeing a person who did not survive a home fire. And we, we, you know, we didn't mope about it, but we did discuss it and we talked openly about it and, and what we could do. And, and it just never seemed to be, um, it not dwelled upon, but we had open discussions about it after every incident, no matter what the call was. There was something out of the norm, something tragic, especially when somebody lost their life. We always had conversations about it, and I've always carried that with me as a company officer, you know, talking to everybody, making sure everybody understood, you know. Um, the tragedies of life. And if, if we all do our job to the best of our ability and give somebody every possible chance, whether it's a search, uh, been entering search rescue, and we've done everything we can, there are, there are things that are going to be out of our control. And um, again, if we have the conversations, I think it will go a long way. And I think our firefighters, our young firefighters need to have these conversations before they even experience it and have those outlets to uh to discuss these things yeah no i agree and one, one thing i've kind of stumbled across myself in a concept that I, I was thinking about is i look retroactively on all all the various departments that i've done the testing with you know that i got hired with because i went started on the east coast went to the west coast came back to the east coast and there's a huge amount of money spent on polygraphs on these crazy psych evals where you're bubble forming thousands of of you know questions <laughs> And my thing is, why are we not taking that money and putting the new, you know, the, the, the new hires, the people that we're hoping to get through two or three counseling sessions instead, creating a relationship with the counselor and maybe offloading, as you mentioned, some of the things that they're bringing into the job, whether it's previous military service, childhood trauma, relationship issues. And then, and then that way, not only are they beginning to, to build some resilience again, but they also have a relationship with a counselor that they feel comfortable going back to as these calls start coming through. Yeah, I think you have a, a fantastic, I think some departments are trying to make some strides in those areas. And I agree with you. The amount of money we waste on some things is absolutely ridiculous. Um, I also am a firm believer that we need to train and have a, have more than just one peer counselor as a firefighter, I think we need to have teams of firefighters um, that are trained as peer counselors. I think our, our firefighters are going to be more apt to talk, discuss, and feel more comfortable with having these conversations with firefighters and then, other than um, a psychiatrist that happens to work through your department that has no idea, has never experienced or seen the things that we, you know, have to see and deal with throughout our careers. And I'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable talking to a fellow firefighter than I would ever be a stranger who has never been inside a fire, has never, you know, had to find that kid that was beyond saving. And I, I think that's where we're dropping the ball a little bit, too, that we're just uh, promoting 
programs, um, employee assistance programs. Everybody has that. It's, you know, standard pad answers for every department. But let's, let's train firefighters to be peer counselors and train them how to recognize things and allow our members to speak to each other and to peer counselors who are, have been through the same exact uh, events they've been through. Yeah. And it's interesting when you look retroactively to, let's say, you know, 60 years ago in the fire service where we had a lot of the things in place now that we're finally starting to try. I mean, we had a lot of place, things in place then that we're now realizing we've lost and need to go back towards them. The firehouse dinner table is one of them, you know, the tailboard critique after a fire. Um, and then even ironically, the, the Dalmatian, the dog. Now people are realizing how therapeutic that was. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that so some of the some of the things from the past are are, are not embraced as much as they should be. I'm not saying we need to go back to three quarter boots and rubber coats, but uh, your fire stations today are individual living cubicles. You know, it's not the big bunk rooms like it used you know used to be where all the guys literally ate, slept hung out together for the entire shift. That's what I grew up in. That, you know, you didn't have an individual room to go sit in. You know, the guys, you know, the company was together throughout the day. Um, and that formed a stronger bond. And that, you know, definitely formed a uh, more open line of communication. And I think we've, we've got to do a better job in educating the, the 20-somethings that are coming on the job about exactly what those jobs really really truly about and i think we've lost that as well yeah and i and i love the individual bunks for multi-company houses because i think it's also insanity to wake up an entire firehouse when one crew has to go on a call but you know the responsibility then lies on the firefighters like yeah when it's bedtime or when you're going to go speak to your kids or you know whatever it is then absolutely go to your your bunk room and get some privacy but make sure that you're in that communal area for most of the shift yeah, yeah, yeah. I think crews that are working, living, and playing together in the firehouse are your stronger crews. And um, I think it'd be interesting, and I, and I truly hope that um, the American Fire Service takes a true look at these suicides and look at the under, underlying factors, too, and not just... Uh, completely say that everything's job related. I, I think that they're going to find that there's a lot of other factors involved in, in some of these suicides as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then one area that is job related that um, people don't usually discuss is the sleep deprivation side. And I've had, mm-hmm. and I talk about this a lot and people listen to the show frequently, they're probably sick of hearing it now, but <laughs> I'm going to keep flogging <laughs> the dead horse. But yeah, that, I mean, that is a huge contributor to mental health. So for me, if the the whole United States Fire Service modeled the Northeast and you know various departments where it was twenty four seventy two was the industry standard, I guarantee you that alone we would see a huge reversal in the mental and physical ill health that we see at the moment. Yeah, to in even uh, being off the line uh, and working in the capacity I work in now. I still, I still rotate on, on four and five hours of sleep every day. And I've never, you know, after 30 years of that, um, I, I can't break that cycle. Even on vacation, I'm, you know, uh, I'm up at 
five o'clock in the morning, and it's just that it, it, it becomes a vicious cycle to a certain degree because you never really develop healthy sleep, sleep patterns. So, yeah, your listeners may be sick of it, and I did, but I think it's something that needs to still be examined and looked at and see um, how it does affect firefighters. Then it's not just the short term; it has to be a long term uh, investigation as far as other things that we could do to make things a little bit easier and a little bit better. But at the end of the day, this is a tough job, both physically and mentally. And we have to find ways to screen our people and provide them the help uh, right out of the gate and not wait till they're already so far down that path that there's no retrieving them. Absolutely. Well, with, with your sleep, I need to tell you about sleep remedy, but we'll do that after we record. But uh, I think I might have something okay. that might help break the cycle. It worked for me, but uh, we'll talk about that later. All right. Well, then, I, so I really want to transition to, um, you know, your, your breaking barriers work. But before that, um, so tell me the story. Like, when did you first become aware of, um, uh, you know, the, some of the special needs community and the challenges in the first responders? And then when did that become like a, a personal thing for you? as like becoming personal was uh, with my son who's on the autism spectrum and I, even even 25 years ago because he's uh, almost 27 now but even 25 years ago uh, and then of course every time he's on TV there's a pill for everything and when he was struggling in school the first thing they did was just immediately label him as attention deficit disorder and want to put him on medication and I did not want to have my son on pills at, you know, in first grade uh, for something that he really didn't need a pill for. He just needed the tutoring for, and that's what we ended up getting him. But it became very evident that he was on the spectrum then uh, with some of his obsessive compulsive behaviors, which he even at his age today exhibits, and and he still does. And so that was the personal side, and the other side, really, uh, to be honest, is because of my wife, and she, my wife does fundraising for a variety of charities, um, and has been in that line of work for 30 years, and she went to work uh, several years back with the National Down Syndrome Congress, and I was introduced more and more into that into that community and really quickly realized that none of us, or especially in my case, didn't have an understanding of the challenges we face as first responders, whether it's somebody with Down syndrome or an individual with autism, and the best way to communicate and handle these situations and some of the little underlying factors that we just don't really train first responders for. There may be a, a quick uh, blurb and a chapter in the books, but it's, again, one of those cases that we just have not educated our, our first responders well enough on. And there's been some very tragic outcomes and uh, a few close calls on my end on calls where we did not handle the situation as well as we could and made assumptions that we should have made. And it was not because we were mean or didn't want to. It was a simple lack of understanding. Right. Well, and that's always the best way of teaching. So if you wouldn't mind just taking taking a few minutes to tell us some of these, you know, these case studies, some of these near misses and, and sadly some of these fatalities. Uh I think one of the one of the there's the one on my end, uh uh adult male that 
in today's society, and I think in public safety as a whole, when you're inundated with these stories constantly via social media and news outlets, um, we tend to start every call in a defensive posture. And we're assuming, sometimes we get off the rig assuming the worst, especially when we see somebody who is acting differently than we think they should be acting. And, uh, of course, uh, an individual on a standard medical call uh, was not responding to us in the what we felt was the correct way. And uh, when we tried to, we became a little over-confrontational and it ended up being a wrestling match. And at the end of the day, this was just an individual who was autistic and nothing more, nothing physically or mentally wrong with this person. It was a cognitive disability that we failed to recognize. And, you know, it, the outcome turned out fine, but it could have been a lot worse and we could have handled things a lot better. I think one of the more tragic stories that are out there and really needs to be examined a lot more in detail for our first responders um, dealt with a gentleman um, named Ethan Saylor. And Ethan uh, was basically, and I don't want to say uh, not purposely, but he, he ended up losing his life basically over a $7 movie ticket. And he re-entered the movie theater when his caregiver went to retrieve their car and was confronted by three off-duty sheriff officers who uh, were just trying to go about their business. But instead of taking the time to listen and understand what the caregiver was explaining to them, they chose to confront Ethan. And during the wrestling match, Ethan suffered uh, a broken trachea and passed away. And when you look at the end result, and I, when I when I do my program, the end result was that an individual lost their life for nothing more than a movie ticket and nothing more than just not having a good, a good firm understanding of cognitive disabilities. Yeah, and it's 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 so heartbreaking because, like you said, you know, we're not given the training, and not even to blame. It's. It's one of those things, and you and I both know this. You go on a person and they're acting unusual. There's there's a spectrum of things. Are they postictal? Are they you know um, got a bleed? You know, have they are they um, inebriated or or high? Are they you know on the autism spectrum? And so there's so many areas, but that's the responsibility we have. And and like you're saying, it's not like blaming anyone that they don't know this already because. We are jack of all trades, especially in, in the fire service. There are so many skills and so many things to be aware of. But I think stories like this are very sobering and make us take a step back and go, all right, this is something I need to put on the top of the pile now as far as my learning because, you know, I just can't imagine what the officers were feeling after. Well, it's too late now. The, you know, the young man's dead. And to retroactively think they could have done it a different way. Yeah, and, and and one of the when people ask me about the program itself, uh, the biggest thing I want is one that we have positive outcomes when we're dealing with people with these cognitive disabilities, and the only way to have a positive outcome in anything we do, obviously, is to have understanding, and that's what this you know, and and then some you know some very simple things as far as recognizing communication tips. Anything that can take a negative and turn into a positive. 
Yeah, well, let's talk about that. So, so what are some of the kind of key areas that you do educate first responders on? You know, the the autistic spectrum, men and women, and then the Downs community as well. Well, I think one, I think one of the things, and and it's always amazing, you know, talking to firefighters after these programs. Uh, and I would say ninety percent of the time. I'm approached after a class and they thank, you know, obviously thank you for the, for the training, but they're a little bit amazed about what they didn't know or what they thought they knew was not correct. And I, one of, um, I had a younger firefighter, um, raise his hand during the class and, and he wanted to express that he, he, he thought that anybody with Down syndrome, anybody with autism, had to work at Kroger to bag groceries that that was their almost like that was their their bar that was as high as they could go in the workforce is the bag groceries at the uh, local Kroger and you know after after taking that in I realized that it wasn't out of meanness or anything like that it was simply he didn't know this was his perception of people with intellectual disabilities that that was what their capabilities were. So we do spend time explaining to people that it's that people with cognitive disabilities are first and foremost individuals and they possess unbelievable talent, unbelievable skills. Um, and they're just like you and I and, and everybody else, they're individual people first and foremost. So we do dispel some of the, uh, perceptions, uh, of a, when it comes to Down syndrome. And autism, and those are some things we do talk about. Uh, and there, there is a broad base of, uh, of people that are low functioning, high functioning with these intellectual disabilities, and they can live in society uh, and do just about everything we do uh, on a daily basis. And it's it's up to us, to, as you know, public servants, to be able to recognize these and and provide them with. Uh, the same service we would expect uh, if somebody was coming to our homes. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you said there's there's a couple that lives in my community here and I don't know exactly the kind of physical mental diagnosis, but I was assume they're both on the autism spectrum. They've both got physical limitations as well, but they found each other and they're a married couple and they, they live in my community and they, you know, I see them out walking and yeah, they just, they don't move the same way as the average human. You know, they, they don't sound the same way when they talk, but they are doing exactly the same things that, you know, my wife and I do every day as well. Mm -hmm. Just because a person has a cognitive disability, such as Down syndrome, such as autism, I think in society, and one of the things I explained to everybody in the program is that these are the these disabilities are these these people actually suffer a lot of discrimination they're looked upon differently at times and they're looked upon differently because of the misunderstanding because not having a comfort level uh, especially with our firefighters in school programs that I've seen where you have the mixed classes where you have typical kids and you have kids with special needs our firefighters aren't comfortable with special needs, so they focus all their energy on fire safety education with the typical kids in the class. And again, it's not a fault of the American Fire Service or those firefighters. It's like it's a matter of comfort. 
uh, of understanding and knowing that these are very unique individuals that are loving, caring, and trusting. And their biggest saying when, when I've spoken to hundreds of kids and adults, they want to be treated just like you want to be treated and just like I, how I want to be treated. We don't, they don't want to be treated any differently. They don't want to be looked at as special. They just want to be treated as individuals. Yeah. Well, now you mentioned the classroom. It's kind of reminded me of something I was going to talk to you about as well. There's a young man, uh, his name's Raiden, and he was featured, I guess, well, you know, on uh, one of those nauseating cell phone videos of, you know, kid being bullied. And, and I believe Raiden is on the aut- autistic spe- uh, spectrum and was jumped by one kid while he was peeing in front of a urinal. Guys, kids started hitting him. And then another one, there was like two or three pieces of shit, excuse my language, that were you know, trying to hit him. And what's beautiful about this story is an MMA fighter that I had on the show, Justin Wren, actually flew him out. Um, and uh, like he does this, and there's another guy, Renner Gracie, and they'll take these kids that are bullied and, and put them through some jujitsu training and get the, the you know, the, the community, the online community to make him realize that the bullies were the ones that were wrong and there's nothing wrong with him. Um, which is, you know, as, as a side note, that's just a beautiful thing. And anyone listening, if they want to do a video, hashtag stand with Raiden, um, then that's, that's where you can, you know, look for that and find his story, but also contribute to the videos telling him, you know, that you support him. But, um, as a side note, that whole thing reminded me, what has been your observation as far as bullying with the special needs community in some of these schools? It, it, it's unfortunate and it's not just, it's not just kids at times. Um, and, and, you know, always take those things with, they are kids, but as school systems, as public servants, as parents, we need to make sure our kids understand that these are, again, individual people um, that have, you know, very unique and sometimes uh, special needs that they may not fully understand, but then they, they're human beings just like everybody else, and they want to be treated the same. And the school system in those cases, and I think that our our system is improving in those areas. I, I do believe that. When it, I think bullying is finally recognized, and it's not just kids with special needs. It's all kids. My son um, kind of falls in his parents' foot tracks now, and he, he was bullied. Uh, because he was, you know, on that spectrum, he was different. He dressed different, and he he suffered a lot of bullying over the course of um, you know his school age years. And that's what he does now. He's has his own nonprofit about bullying, and he's taken a very unique approach. And so, just dealing with kids that are being bullied, he wants to actually step up to the plate and deal with the bullies and try to show them. Um, you know, avenues of understanding and uh, respect for others. And just because somebody is different, dresses different, acts different, doesn't give anybody the right to bully them, especially when you're dealing with somebody who has Down syndrome or uh, a child with autism that's trying to go about their day like everybody else. Yeah. And as we know, you know, the bullies are usually broken themselves and that's why they're trying to make themselves feel better by picking on you know people usually they perceive a weaker than them and i can see how the autism and the the downs community would be a quote-unquote easy target for a cowardly bully to to make themselves feel powerful against yeah yeah 
and it's such an and and, and the especially children, um, they're an easy target for for those type of individuals. And and I hope the school systems continue to work towards eliminating that. Um, and again, it was just, it, it was sad to see some of the things uh, my own son had to go through um, throughout his school years as well. Yeah. Now, what's your son's uh, nonprofit called? I'll, I'll put that on the website. He is renamed it three times, so I'm not going to give you a name because he could change it. Again. <laughs> <laughs> That's that autism kicking in, huh? <laughs> yeah. At times, it's it's it's, uh, it's interesting to watch uh, because he he comes off sometimes as this big tough guy, but at the end of the day, he will literally you know take the clothes off his back for another person and i think it's you know he's that's his niche uh in life is uh you know help others you know with it not go through some things he had to go through um you know as a, as a young man growing up and and finding his own way and and uh couldn't be more proud to be able to say that he's doing something you know for others and that's i can't I can't think of a greater gift that people give is when they give to other people and not for the money. Um, anybody that works in nonprofit or works in firefighting or uh, police and public safety, uh, we know there's no money involved in it. So there's, there's always a, a deeper calling, I think, for uh, all of us when we talk about public safety and, and helping others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you said about how kind he was. It really made me think about, you know, some of the things that we see in those two communities. And we've got several um, young men and, and little girls with Down syndrome in the gym that I, I coach at. And when you watch the joy in, you know, one, one of them, Vinny's is, you know, I think he's 18, 19 now. Um, and he does the competitions as well. You know, we'll, we'll have an adaptive division and him and some some other young men and women with down will come and uh come and compete as well and just the joy from the simplest things whether it's the you know the achieving a movement or you know whatever it is we the non-down syndrome community can learn about that presence that being in the moment and that gratitude of all the small small things in the world because that's something i think that they do so much better than the average person without down syndrome yeah i, I- and that's always been one of my favorite things um, as I've gotten more involved and the, and the more the individuals I have a chance to meet and talk to. And, and I gain understanding every time. And that's what's very unique about this type of training and unique about being involved with special needs is because everybody, because of the individuality, you you really learn something new all the time, and it's uh, it's very interesting to to see and watch. And uh, I had the honor of meeting a young man who had won a uh, ESPY award, and he was so proud of it. He carried it with him throughout the convention, and I actually was able to con him and to let me hold the ESPY award and get a picture with him holding his ESPY award so I could you know, tell people I won an ESPY award. Which, uh, <laughs> I'll never win because I don't have the athletic ability to ever win one, but he does. So uh, It was very nice of him to let me do that. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, And then with the autistic you know, side, the, the brilliance of some of these men and women. I remember seeing a video of... Uh, a uh, young man and I think he'd flown over New York City in a helicopter and then 
they videoed him drawing the entire Manhattan landscape from memory. I mean, so that's the other thing. Oh, is wow. People look at autistic like, oh, he doesn't talk the same as me. Look at the way he's dressed. Yeah, but I mean, that guy, <laughs> that guy's brain is, you know, infinitely more intelligent than most of us as well. So I, it's crazy that we always focus on the things that are different, like it's a bad thing. When each of these groups have all these things that we can learn from and, and, and study, like, and like I said, the autistic side, some of these, these, uh, these geniuses that, that are on the autistic spectrum, but are doing the most incredible things with art, with, you know, with, with math, whatever it is. Yeah, and I think uh, for for people listening, if you if they're not familiar or, or not aware of the television show America's Got Talent, the winner of this past year, uh, Cody Lee, who is autistic and blind, um, and we watched the interview with him on his first performance. You can see some of the communication things we talk about in the class. So you have to ask one question. There's going to be a delay in response. It's not a delay because the the person is not intelligent. It just it takes people with special needs, autism and Down syndrome, longer to process these questions. So you just you ask your question, you're patient, and you'll get your response. And so I use that video of his very first performance, and it's funny because so many of the firefighters had never seen his performance, and he sits down at the piano and absolutely blows away you know 20,000 people in the audience and uh it's another example uh and after seeing the performance I immediately you know researched him and he has that ability to hear a piece of music have it memorized play it perfectly and sing every note on on tune by hearing that piece of music once so that's that's Cody's special talent and it's incredible to watch and um, one of our biggest self advocates, um, right here in Georgia, who, then I, I want to make sure I don't miss this point. This program was not written by Google. This program has, has really been written by my own experiences and by individuals who are self advocates for Down syndrome, self advocates for autism. Their families, uh, gave me everything that's in this class. It's coming from them about their needs, the way we have to communicate with them and things they expect from us as professional firefighters and public safety uh, experts. And so it's really interesting to watch. Uh, Lily right here in Georgia has uh, been on uh, TV multiple times in, you know, in, in, in acting parts and, continues to act. Um, Lily has started her own nonprofit uh, here in Georgia uh, where she provides care packages for homeless people in the city of Atlanta. And, and she is an incredible 16-year-old young lady that's doing things that, you know, a lot of 16-year-olds would even consider doing. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. But, but so that, that's a very important point. I hadn't even thought about this before. So Cody Lee wins America's Got Talent. I think that speaks a lot about who, and obviously it's in our, our country here, so who Americans truly are. And we see on the TV this division and this hatred between the extremes, you know, and these bully videos come online. But I think that inherently most people actually are far more progressive, far more compassionate. Sometimes I think they just need to be led in that, in that way. But, you know, in 2019, we had a blind, you know, autistic man when America's got, got talent. I think that is that really represents where we actually are in, in, in 2019. I think that's phenomenal. 
Yeah, and I think what at the end of the day, at the end of that show, and one of the things I point out in the class is if you watch the audience initial response, and and you know the guys in the class always pick it up when when Cody Lee's mother you know explains that Cody is autistic and blind, the entire audience you can hear them go, oh, oh, that poor guy, and then when he sits down and sings, they totally forget that he's blind and autistic. And he won based on his talent, not based because he has special needs. I have no doubt people voted for him because he is truly uh, unbelievable talent. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny because he doesn't want sympathy and pity. He, Like you said, he wants to show you that he's going to knock your socks off with his voice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm, I'm, I'm truly hope to get out to Vegas again because that's part of the package that they get a headline show in Las Vegas and uh, I'd pay top dollar for that ticket to go see him. He was that good. He was, he was that. If you close your eyes, you would never know anything else about, about him if you just listened to him play and sing. Yeah. And I think, I think I did. I think my wife, you know, she's on her phone a fair bit and, uh, I heard this voice. And I was like, wow, that's good. You know, cause, and I have to ask, like, let me guess, is that a three year old Vietnamese kid? Cause, <laughs> you know, it just, it blows me away now. The, the, you know, what comes out of some of these tiny, tiny kids these days. But, um, yeah. I mean, she's like, oh no, this is kid. And then we started watching it and realized that Cody was initially thought he was blind and then autistic as well. And, Again, it didn't matter because I I heard the voice first and then that other stuff came after. Right. So yeah, but yeah, yeah so that was really good. And, and those are some things we do do in the program from an educational standpoint to show. Uh, I show a clip of uh, you know my one of our self advocates Lily and in, in one of her acting you know when she's on a television series and it's clipped out to show her parts and her speaking parts and and she's funny. I mean she's very funny in in the in her speaking parts um during the show and it's it, I think people again uh like I referred to the guy who thought oh they can only work at Kroger. Well, you know, here Lily is uh, a cheerleader at her high school, uh her own YouTube channel uh in acting and doing more at 16 than, you know, some adults have accomplished. And this is what she's doing uh, all the while having Down syndrome. And she knows she has Down syndrome, but she doesn't use that. She she uses her natural God-given talents to do what she wants to do. And it's incredible to watch. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm sure you have. Have you seen that, that um, speech that Frank Stevens made um, who has Down syndrome? I think it was in Congress, I think it was. Um, talking about basically, I believe it was the whole philosophy of, of the moment you think your child has Downs and then you abort it. And, and his whole thing was, well, I'm here and here's what I've done. Extremely articulate, an amazing speech. But uh, yeah, that, that went viral as well. Yeah, yeah, I have seen that. It, it, it's, it's incredible. Again, it's the misunderstandings or the, or the perceptions that I, I think a lot of people have that is one of the biggest reasons this program was put together is to dispel those things and allow our first responders to have quick recognition, understand communications, and make these positive interactions, whether it's at a fire safety event at the firehouse or at a festival or at a school, or we actually have to go to a home or a vehicle accident and have these interactions and make them a positive event. Um, and, and truly provide the help that somebody may actually need out there. 
Yeah. Well, you mentioned about the, you know, when you're asking questions, leaving more time. Um, I had to do the same with B shift when I worked before as well. Um, <laughs> but, uh, are there, are there, what are some of the other key kind of, uh, areas that you advise the first responders when, when you're, you know, teaching them actually how to, to, uh, be more aware when they're working with those patients? I think one, one of the key things, uh, that, that I really try to emphasize is, is when we're, when we're having these conversations is there's no absolutes when it comes to special needs. There's no absolutes in appearance. There's no absolutes in behaviors. And, and it, again, it's one of the many challenges when you're talking about special needs. Um, Down syndrome itself is not physically painful whatsoever. However, a lot, a lot of people, and this is very unique, uh, a lot of people with Down syndrome can have extremely high tolerances for pain, pressure, heat, cold. And one of the things we, you know, we tell people in the program, uh, if you have a person that you've recognized or have been told has Down syndrome and they're complaining of pain, do a little more research if it's, if it's that kind of per, if it's that individual that has that high tolerance and they're complaining of pain, that should immediately send up red flags, um, to our first responders that there's something really wrong with this patient and it's, it, it's time to get on the road and get them transported. Um, and with autism, a very good friend of mine's nephew, uh, is extremely autistic and He's all, autism is all over the board. You have folks that the sound of a vacuum cleaner literally uh, can make them feel like there's somebody driving a nail into their brain. In my friend's case, his nephew can literally touch a lit stove, pulls hand away, and have, you know you can see the rings of a of a uh, stove on his hand, and he has no clue that he's been burned. Really? So that there's just things about. Um, autism and down syndrome that we have to have that understanding of they literally had to teach his nephew what pain was because he didn't feel that pain and so just other challenges that you know you could encounter on any given any given shift day or any vehicle accident or any home um and it, again it's one of the other challenges but we have to have that understanding of the, of that, that we do have a patient that does have that high tolerance and now they're complaining of that pain, that's a red flag. That is a true red flag for our folks that they've got to be very aggressive in their care and their transport or whatever the case may be, that this is, uh, this is a true emergency, not your standard, uh, somebody just whine about tummy ache to get out of work or school that day. Yeah. Well, you mentioned tummy ache. That's funny. I was just about to say that. I know, I, I remember, I forget which documentary it was, I was watching, but, um, that somewhat recently they realized that a lot of the, the combativeness and, and the, the behavioral issues in the more, more severely autistic men and women was from GI distress and they were getting these horrendous cramps. And I think that they were, you know, filling them full of, of meds and it wasn't addressing the underlying issue. And when they changed the diet on some of these people, they were actually able to get the behavioral side much more, you know, even keel because these poor people were just in agony, but they had no way of expressing it. Yeah, I think, uh, again, one of our challenges is that we have very short, quick, intense interactions 
uh, with, with you know everybody that we come in contact with on on emergency scenes, whether it's at a, a structure fire or vehicle accident or whatever the case may be. Um, this is again the importance of having understanding such as such as the tolerance thing uh, uh, for pain and and the lack of tolerance in some cases for others. So it, it, there's such a wide variety. And I, I, I constantly throughout throughout my trainings make sure that I just harp and harp and harp on. There's no set standards here because at the end of the day, it's individuals first. So you have to take your time and be patient to figure out and kind of solve the puzzle of whatever you're dealing with at that time. Um, there's the you know there's sometimes a lack of fear where there should be fear. So there's just the, the host of challenges this runs the gamut of things that we could encounter on any given day. Right. Now, just to change tact a little bit, um, this is really kind of stemmed from just watching that series, Making a Murderer. But uh, there's a young man, Brendan Dassey, who is accused of being part of the murder of this young lady um it seems the way that everything's kind of told that the two people in in prison do not seem like they were the ones that did it um i mean obviously it's it's a show and it's telling it from one angle but one of the key things is this young man who was 16 at the time um is you know basically on the autism spectrum as well and was coerced in the interview. There's no question about that. In the interview, he was coerced. Whether he did it, didn't do it, whatever, he was uh, definitely led, and it appeared like he hadn't done it. So from a law enforcement perspective, and I'm sure there's many compassionate officers out there that would do everything the right way, um, have you come across the the interrogation side um, when it comes to people that are autistic or you know have Down syndrome and and the the fear of of like a false confession? I have I've heard my my personal experiences. No, I have not. I've I've heard stories. Uh, there there's again are um, our, our police officers as a whole. Are, do unbelievable work. They do work I couldn't, I could never imagine doing. And of course, you guys, police officer, and they're like, "There's no way in hell I'd ever run into a burning building." And I'm like, "I'd never run down that dark alley chasing somebody with a gun either." So, no, I agree with you. Uh, <laughs> the, their interactions are much like ours. They're typically in stress situations. They're very short, and you're trying to make a lot of decisions. Um, that can be life changing in a matter of seconds. And, you know, referring back to the Ethan Saylor where miscommunication and misunderstanding led to a person dying. Uh, there was a recent case where a, uh, autistic person was arrested, uh, shouldn't have been. And when they realized it, instead of taking care of this person, he was just basically released back out into the streets and with no knowledge of where he was located, not exactly the best part of the city. And it was just ignored. Uh, um, and again, a misunderstanding of those type of things can lead to really negative consequences um, when it comes to interaction from the police side as well. And that's another avenue or another area that really needs to have the opportunity to receive training such as this. So they can pick up on little things. Not everybody's out to kill you. And, and again, today's society um every morning even this morning 
literally four miles from my house. There was a police involved shooting with a suspect and, um, our police officers are under uh, unbelievable stress and under attack in some cases, uh, unfortunately. So I can definitely see where them not under, having that understanding can lead to some really negative consequences when they're dealing with people that they don't truly understand with special needs. And again, as a, from the community, they need to really reach out to more police officers. I know in Ethan's case, uh, his mother tried to reach out to the police department and provide that understanding, and the police department apparently wasn't interested in, in learning that, which is unfortunate, again, uh, because of the legal systems and lawsuits. We're always so worried about political correctness and somebody being offended, and we just need to sometimes just shut up and listen and learn about these things before we have it, and not learn from a negative outcome but let's let's learn it on the front end so we can avoid those outcomes yeah exactly and then you're absolutely right with the the law enforcement community and i talk about this a lot like you know again as we mentioned earlier how much does sleep deprivation factor into some of these mistakes that they've made whether it's too much um you know aggression in in, in an arrest or whether it's you know mistaking someone reaching for a driving license and reaching for a gun but then i also know several police officers in this area that are dead because they didn't react fast enough so it's such a gray area whether you're a firefighter or a medic a, a police officer but as you're saying the more knowledge we have at least we have those tools to possibly recognize and 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 figure out that ah this is actually an an autistic person not you know a drugged up felon or you know whatever the other options are yeah well and again in, in on the fire and ems side of our job we are in a defensive posture so much because we just don't know whose house we're walking into sometimes and you know sometimes we're benefited by having some information in our on our computer system that this is a person with special needs and sometimes we're just told it's a person laying in the street so it, it runs all over the board. We go in sometimes with a lot of understanding of what call we're going to, and sometimes we run a call with nothing more than is a person down, and we have to start putting that puzzle together when we get on the scene based on what we're seeing and witnessing. And again, hopefully this this program will hopefully close a little bit of those gaps uh, and make us better, whether we're dealing with somebody with special needs or, you know, dealing with a typical person on a, uh, a any given day. Yeah. And it sounds like an incredible program. I've been doing this for 15 years now, and this is really, aside from one fireman I had reached out about a year ago, this is really the first time that, you know, I've, I've heard this and even the pain tolerance thing, 15 years, and I didn't know that. So, what I love about what we do is if you take this job seriously and you constantly learn and understand that, you know, you're, you're responsible for so many skills. Um, you know, you just get better as time goes on. And then with your experience, you can then impart that knowledge to your crews, you know, shift department, however aggressive you want to be. Yeah, we're current right now. We're currently running, uh, every member of Atlanta fire rescue through this training. Um, and the response so far has been nothing but positive uh, to gain the understanding. And again, I'm always amazed at how many people, uh, both in my organization and some of the other organizations in the metro Atlanta area that I've done training for, 
uh, have family members that are either autistic or family members where they uh, have a sister or a brother who has a child who has Down syndrome. And, and um, they're amazed of what they didn't know. And they even have a family member that's in that, you know, somewhere on the autism spectrum or um, somewhere along along those lines. And, and they share their stories with me all the time. Yeah. A uh, firefighter in, in our area has uh, a son who is, he's like 6'4", he's just a huge, huge kid. He's very autistic and he tends to wander away from home, but the dad has taken preemptive steps and has introduced every police officer in their little town to their son so there isn't a negative reaction if a police officer has to, you know, confront him or, or speak to him. So it's, it's, again, little things like that, but a big metro area such as the uh, Atlanta area, there's just, you know, millions of people uh, that we could have come in, in contact with on any given day. Yeah. Well, and that's, a, that's a very, very important point, too, is that sense of community. There's so much good that comes from that, I think, from a mental health standpoint, but also from an, an altruistic standpoint. You know, people point to the president, whether they're wearing a blue tie or a red tie and and expect them to change the country for them it's like no this this is how you do it is you take care of your people and and if if a community can do that i don't know if you ever saw it was a a video i think it was in france where an entire town learned sign language so they could communicate with the the one young man that was deaf and they they videoed him uh walking down the street and they all started talking to him in sign language and he was absolutely shocked but that's because those people gave a damn to actually make someone's life better. And I think that's the same thing with this. If someone in your community has those special needs, then, you know, you should really all reach out and try and make sure that, that you're aware and, and find out how you can make their life better. Right. And it seems like it should be as hard as we sometimes make it. Um, but we tend to do out the American fire service. Um, it, it's funny sometimes how we can take something as simple as a one-on-one conversation and make it into this big, dramatic, <laughs> complex, uh, episode of things. And so just, you know, I think again, society has a direct bearing on how we respond to, both people with special needs and how we respond to each other in some cases uh, the, the constant overreaction everything is uh, is huge to me the way we do overreact uh, to everything yeah yeah and overcomplicate I mean you and I both know in our profession what should be a quick conversation to get something done is oh you need to email this chief and then send it up the chain and, and like for God's sake we're just trying to, do you want to do the training yeah. on this day yes or no <laughs> Yeah, and I get unfortunately I get uh, I get to deal with that on a regular basis, or fill out forty two documents and deliver a ninety minute presentation. So yes, it's uh, always a unique challenge anytime you're doing anything. It seems like anymore in the fire services. So, but uh, one one of the things that um, I, I just I it just crossed my mind, and I didn't want to forget it, uh, and especially for firefighters who may be listening, or, or police officers who may be listening. Um, throughout the country, one of the one of the other things that there has been some increase in over the last several years, and being in a large metropolitan area and having the Super Bowl here this past year, it became a little more obvious. Um, 
a lot of people with intellectual disabilities are uh, very um, susceptible to being sexually exploited. And that is a true, true, you know, we kind of grazed on the bullying aspects, but there are, as you know, and as most people listen to this podcast know, there are people that will take advantage of every situation they can take advantage of. And that includes taking advantage of individuals. So one of the things that we we do discuss in the class is about uh, sexual, uh, being sexually exploited and to recognize that if it, if, you know, the old say, you know, see something, say something has to really apply when we're dealing with something with special needs. If something just doesn't look right, I, I really stress to all of our firefighters and EMS personnel, if it doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, it may not be right. And to get something else, get somebody else involved, get, get police involved into the situation. Um, it's, it's tragic that we do have individuals in our society that would take somebody um, with a cognitive disability and exploit them sexually because they can. And unfortunately, that person and, and a lot of people with Down syndrome are very loving, very trusting individuals that don't understand always that they are being taken advantage of. So that's one of the things I uh, always try to get out, no matter if I'm talking about five minutes or if I'm doing the full presentation, be on the lookout for those things at all times. And it doesn't have to be a big city like the metropolitan Atlanta area. It can be in somebody's, you know, small town community that this is happening. And it's uh, up to us as public safety to see it, recognize it, and damn be sure that you tell somebody and get other people involved when we suspect those things may be going on. Yeah, I'm so glad that you you talked about that. I had a guy, Nick McKinley, on who's a retired CIA, and he started um, an organization to help law enforcement find sex traffickers. And listening to him talking about how to identify you know, sex trafficking victims I'd never even thought about it. I honestly hadn't. When when I think about, you know, as a medic, how many of these people could have been, you know, are there any signs for, for them kind of asking for help without asking for help? Um, and yeah, I mean, what a vulnerable community, you know, that community is, the special needs community. Because I've had even like multiple firefighters, you know, mainly male, who were abused as children, who, you know, ultimately ended up very physically and mentally strong. So if they were able to be taken advantage of, then you know you can only imagine uh, an adult-sized special needs man or woman. You know what the potential is there. So yeah, absolutely, we need to to you know have our head on a swivel for that. Yeah, and again, it's just a matter. Yeah, if it and, and you know, it's not in a lot of cases. And I think in public safety, both police, fire, EMS. You know, we try to get there as fast as we can, and all. And our, our main focus, and it really should be one of our main focuses. We want to get there, and we want to fix the issue, fix the problem, and move on. That it's real quick to get to an accident scene and just fix the issue, get everybody to the hospital, or get everybody safe, and then move on about our day. And when we recognize these things, we've got to just pump the brakes, slow down and take a hard look and make sure that this isn't something out of the norm, that this isn't a sex trafficking case, that this person with special needs is with the person they're supposed to be with. And um, if it doesn't feel right, doesn't look right, doesn't smell right, then we got we, we have to have the courage to speak up. And, and, you know, if we have to apologize later, we'll apologize later. But 
I know I would sleep better that night knowing that I followed through with that uh, with that sense that I had versus go back to the firehouse and wonder, you know, man, maybe that wasn't quite what it should have been. Maybe that person should have been in the car with that person. And um, areas like Atlanta, uh, that was a big deal during the Super Bowl, sex trafficking. Um, our current governor's wife uh, has a huge campaign along with Delta Airlines about, about sex trafficking. But I think, again, um, because we don't have encounters every day with people with special needs, we tend to sometimes forget about the entire community and, and they're just as successful, you know, just as have to be taken advantage of as anybody on any given day. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that we, we sadly see when it's too late on the news is whether it's sexual or not, just abuse sometimes from, from their own family members too, you know, just keeping them isolated in a room or whatever it is. So yeah, another thing for us to be aware of. Yeah, very much so. Very, very much so. Right. Well, just turning, turning the, you know, to the other side of the coin for a moment. So obviously you educate us on, you know, having Downs and um, autistic patients, but you also do work with those communities on interacting with us. So what are some of the, the areas that you address when you're working with them? So what... Uh, <laughs> We, I know we, we had sidebarred, uh, we discussed earlier about where we spend some of our fire service money and um, talking to parents, uh, I found out, you know, I quickly learned and, and I was a big believer that, you know, yes, we have to educate, you know, kindergartners and first graders and second graders about fire safety. And I, and I fully support that idea. Unfortunately, the American fire service as a whole has kind of failed in educating adults about fire safety in a lot of cases. You know, you hear, well, check your smoke alarms, you know, check your batteries every, you know, twice a year, won't change the clocks. But after that, we, we don't do a really good job in educating families. And I think it's even more critical to educate families that have children with special needs about fire safety and what they can do to keep their homes fire safe and what to do if a fire does occur. And as I, as I started teaching some of these things, I found I was just kind of teaching the very general fire safety tips. Um, you know, and if you ask the standard, you know, kindergarten age, first grader, well, we spend thousands upon thousands of dollars every year in sticker books and coloring books and, you know, uh, pop-up tents, you know, the occasional department has the very nice smokehouse. They typically will know, stop, drop, and roll, and call 911. But after that, it gets a little vague about, you know, what to really do. So as I was asking some mothers at a recent convention about what to do if a stove caught on fire, you know, a grease fire, the majority of them fell back on the old baking soda. Um, I've had moms tell me, oh, I'm just going to put salt on it. I'm going to throw flour on it. And I'm amazingly most parents that you ask would not think of, Hey, let me turn off the stove. Let me get a lid. And if I don't have a lid, let me get a, a cookie sheet or a baking sheet to cover that lid to smother the flames. And we have to do a better job educating all adults on fire safety. But when it comes to our special needs community, it's a different type of teaching. Um, when we're trying to educate long-term with cognitive disabilities, what is very obvious is it's not, it can't be a one and done. 
and typically that's how we do our, you know, fire prevention is a week long. And we, you know, fire departments throughout the country do incredible work with children, but we have kind of dropped the ball uh, when it comes to our special needs community. And those individuals can't be a 25-minute session, go out, look at the fire truck and run and be done. It has to be a more concerted effort in showing them how to stay low underneath smoke, why you should stay in your bedroom if there's fire outside, gain an understanding and provide parents with the tools to understand why it's important to have your bedroom door shut. And the some of the moms that I spoke with recently were very honest that with Down syndrome, that you do have children that in stress situations are runners and they will literally take off down the street. So they almost are forced to have to lock their kids into their bedrooms at night, but they'll sleep with their bedroom door open because they want to be able to hear if the child is trying to get outside the bedroom. So some very new challenges there, both for our, for us as firefighters and for these families. And so we do spend, we do have a program where we will literally just work directly with um, families themselves as well as the kids about fire safety and having an understanding that, you know, the dangers of fire, um, the dangers of smoke and some best practices for their homes as far as smoke alarms, windows, uh, escape mechanisms, um, hiding spots can be very unique. Friend of ours, son who has Down syndrome, his unique hiding spot is the dryer. That's, that's his hiding spot. So that's another challenge for our fire service members to understand that's not going to be your standard underneath the bed or inside the closet, which we've taught firefighters for a hundred years. That's where you go search at. Um, there could be other unique challenges when it comes to locks and, and doorways and uh, hiding spots. So it's a, it's another very broad based gamut, but the fire safety side is, is almost been ignored to a certain point when it comes to special needs families and, and their children. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, just kind of jogged a memory. The closest I've ever had to truly having a grab on a fire, um, you know, a live one at least, is uh, we did a right-hand search on a single-family dwelling. And right when we got to the very last one, which would be in the last, the, the first room on the left, if we go on the left hand, um, there was a, a young autistic girl, which now in hindsight, I'm wondering why the hell we weren't told that when we went in. Um, but she was just on her bed. So it was a unique search because she literally hadn't moved. She hadn't been frightened by the smoke, the fire, anything. She was exactly the same place, just bundled under the covers. So, um, you know, that was, that was kind of bizarre as well that everyone else was out but she was in exactly the same place she wasn't hiding she was actually as if there was no fire at all which now in hindsight was very very unusual yeah and i think one of the one again the, the challenge from an education standpoint for these families is that because with down syndrome and autism it's such a broad gamut of different needs and, and, and um, the individual, whether they have the, um, the no fear reaction or uh, they're nonverbal, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the kids and, and young adults who are nonverbal that they, you know, the, these programs have to be broad based and they address things as they come along too. And again, we're, these are things that we learn all the time. Uh, and I pick up, 
little things all the time from, you know, from the fire standpoint, the unique search patterns that you may have to take a look at. Um, will the kids stay, like in your case, stay in the bedroom and not react to the smoke alarm or react to the smell? Um, these are things we, we have not done a very good job of throughout the fire service in educating, you know, families uh, with special needs children that are living at home or special needs adults who are still living at home with their families. And so that's one of the other programs we really, really, uh, we, we really focused on is educating the adults first on just general home fire safety. Um, and I know I get, I get harassed sometimes when I'm at a friend's house and go, uh, you got 42 things plugged in here. That's probably not safe. <laughs> <laughs> that's the fire one. Uh, you can't turn that off. Yeah, and, but we again we haven't done a really good job. I, th- I thought the uh, the program of uh, close before you dose, the national program, showing you know trying to show America the importance of shutting your bedroom doors at night, uh, is an unbelievable program. I don't don't know how successful it's been as far as a constant, consistent message of that program, and I've had a lot of mothers come to me. And, and and so they've never heard that before, that they should sleep with their door shut. They should have their children sleep with their bedroom door shut. And, the, and how much safety, uh, something as simple as a hollow core door leading into a bedroom can protect their families at night. So it's, a, it's one of the messages we do send in that program and, and show them examples of that. Um, a couple little tricks that we try when we're, you know, showing kids smoke and uh, without actually putting them in the fake smoke, and that we can you can literally do your own home with a bed with a bed sheet, you know things like that are very simple to do. And those are some things we do with the families uh, uh, when we're doing those type of programs as well. Very nice. Actually, I just bought a smoke machine. We got a zombie for Halloween, and he spits out smoke. So now I've got a great fire training tool myself. <laughs> there you go. You practice at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you just just as a as a segue, because you mentioned about educating the parents. I think another area that we, I mean, I, I don't know, unless I'm just completely deaf and blind to it, that I haven't heard any sort of standard increase in whatsoever is our driving tests. And I came from England. On average, people normally fail a driving test the first first or second time, and usually pass it the third time. And it's really hard because you're in this death machine that you can basically murder a whole bunch of people by accident. <laughs> and I came to Florida and we literally did some maneuvers in a, in a car park. And he's like, congratulations. And I'm like, what do you mean congratulations? Is that you just passed? I'm like, we haven't done anything. What do you mean I just, and I see it now, the knock on effect. I mean, we have so many fatalities around here. We've got a, a, a roundabout, a traffic circle. Um, it, it's just improvised. You know, you can see if you have no idea how to go around it at all. They just kind of try and figure it out. And uh, yeah, and, but it's the same thing you're saying with the parents. It's like we have an opportunity to set that bar much higher at the new driver level, but it stayed the same. And it's like we're losing so many people in these wrecks. Why are we not addressing the driver's safety too? Yeah, I, it's funny. What, again, it kind of goes back to statements we talked, you know, some of the things we said earlier about where public safety spends their money at sometimes. It's funny what we'll, we'll react to or underreact to or overreact to. And um, whether it's the driver safety aspect where we'll spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to educate a 16-year-old or we won't spend any money and you just, you know, <laughs> hand them a license or some 
somebody out of the country, uh, here is your driver's license. You you didn't hit nothing in this giant open parking lot. You're good. Yeah. Go out there and be safe. Exactly. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, uh, oh, you know, if you look, I think uh, as of October 13th, that there's been uh, 1,551 home fire fatalities this year already. And again, that's where our focus should be. Those numbers don't change that, that over 2000 people died at home fires in a country such as the United States should not still be happening. And we have to do a better job of educating um, the families and, and let's not spend $1 billion on stickers and people dressed up as Sparky. Let's, let's spend some money on, those campaigns like close free those in a much more, you know, you know, progressive manner. There's thousands of social media ways to get that message out, uh, TV, radio, whatever it takes, um, to get that message out. I know Georgia forestry here is really pushing, uh, forest fire safety right now. And they're having, they're hitting a roadblock on trying to put it up on the jumbotron at the college football games this week. And again, we'll, we'll put up about, you know, the Coke for sale, but we won't put up that be careful about forest fires because everything's so dry. And just the way we send messages in, in society as a whole, but with our special needs community, um, we have to do a better job because they already have, you know, knowing so many families and meeting so many families, they already have so much on their plate um, with their special needs child. That sometimes fire safety is almost forgotten because as human beings, we kind of walk around oblivious to danger at times. And, oh, it's never going to happen to me. It's never going to happen to me. It's never going to happen to me. And um, you know, and as well as I do, that it could happen tonight. So we have to get that message out to, to all families. But, you know, obviously my focus is to make sure that none of our firefighters ever have to worry about a child with special needs or, or a young adult living on his own uh, with special needs goes through that tragedy. And we have to do a better job educating them about that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And like you said, some of these messages are so simple. And have you seen the kind of huge um, surge in awareness now with tourniquets? I know I was, I was taught, which wasn't that long ago, only 15 years ago, that if you put a tourniquet on your leg, it's going to fall off, you know, and now they're like, oh, yeah, actually, that was complete bullshit. <laughs> My bad. But, you know, it's so simple. You buy a tourniquet, you learn how to do it, you practice it, and you could literally save a life anywhere. I might take mine into the gun ranges in my car and I drive because you never know. But how quick can you create an opportunity to save? Same with the AEDs. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't take a lot, but when that bureaucracy gets in the way, it... it creates a barrier to us educating people that need to to hear the message and that's what i love about the podcast if i can actually get people aware of these and get them to hit play there's a direct line between what you're telling us today and people that need to hear it yeah i get it's uh it's another format yeah it's another it's another media format with these podcasts so hopefully if if if, we, if this message gets to one or two guys or one or two families about some things they can look for, some things they can do better. Um, you know, obviously uh, reaching out to me for information, uh, reaching out to yourself for additional information on everything that we've, you know, been discussing this morning 
is that's all I care. That's that's real. I think what you truly only care about, what I only care about, if we affect or help one person, then you know, obviously, you know, this time that we're spending today is worth every single second of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then chances are it's going to, you know, get to a lot more people than that. Um, so let's talk about then breaking barriers where people can find the, uh, you know, the, the Facebook page and how they can reach out to you to get you to their department. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really easy to reach. Uh, uh, my email address is real simple. It's Todd Edwards six, the number six, and that's at Yahoo. And then I'm on, uh, I have a personal Facebook page and then I have a Facebook page called the drill yard and I, constantly not just on special needs obviously but i have a i post articles on firefighter firefighter safety training tips uh religiously upcoming events conferences and those types of things and then we're slowly managing the breaking barriers uh facebook page as well and uh, obviously i can be contacted that way and we are more than open to doing things, whether it's with an individual, a, an entire organization. Um, and all we, all we want at the end of the day is to prevent uh, an Ethan Saylor story or prevent a fire department from having a very bad interaction with somebody just by not understanding a simple communication tip as ask one question, slow down, talk nicely. Um, and just those understandings are just so basic, but we tend to forget in our hustle and bustle society and the way we manage fire scenes and emergency scenes of get in, get the job done and get out. And those kind those types of interactions are not going to be productive, uh, when we're dealing with our special needs community. Absolutely. Uh, I, like I said, I've learned so much myself, you know, 15 years on, uh, it's, it's been amazing. Now I know you do another presentation, No Fear Leadership. Do you just want to tell us about that as well? Yeah, No Fear, uh, No Fear Leadership is, is one of my favorite programs. It's one of our, our kind of our stand programs, I guess. And when we, you know, we, Again, the, the, what makes that program so unique is that it's constantly updated based on experiences and talking to other firefighters. I, I'm, I understand that we have the CAN programs, the NFA Fire Officer Ones and Twos. Those are great, unbelievable programs for you know fire officers, but none of those programs address what we really need to address as leaders in today's fire service. Um, there's a big difference in dealing with a 40 year old man who's come up through the ranks versus dealing with a 20 year old who knows nothing but text messaging and how, <laughs> and how we communicate with people and the diversity in the American fire service today is unlike anything I grew up in, um, where you never thought about that there may be a firefighter in your fire station who is openly gay. And we have these conversations and I, we do tips and we do some exercises in that program where you have to have open conversations about our differences. And we just are almost afraid to have open, honest discussions that people are different and our differences is what makes the American fire service so unique and so incredible. But we run into issues when we don't have the the conversations and it goes back to what we discussed earlier. One of the reasons I think we do see an increased risk in suicide and, 
and some of the things because we just won't sit down and openly discuss our differences in society, openly discuss when somebody's in trouble, openly discuss when somebody with special needs needs our assistance. We we have to, and that's really with no fear, it talks about all those type of things. And it, I've literally, people get uncomfortable sometimes, but at the end of the program, they understand that we have to gain comfort with everybody we deal with, um, both in the firehouse and the people we serve. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like an amazing program and it's, and it's, it's absolutely true. And it's an observation that I've made and talked about on this podcast many times is, you know, you should be celebrating your differences, but when you put your gear on, now you become one of two things, a good firefighter or a shitty firefighter. That's it. You know, <laughs> behind the mask, no one knows if you're black, white, gay, straight, you know, Hindu, Muslim, whatever it is, you either can or you can't. So that's the crazy thing is that when the shit hits the fan, we just want the ones that can. And if you, you know, lay in bed with someone of the same sex or, you know, whatever it is, that, I mean, that, I don't say that, but it's a bad thing at all. That's just who you are. That's just the, the specifics of your personal life. But on the fire ground, on, you know, on an EMS call, you just want the person that can. And that's, that's the only prejudice I think that should be in the fire service is the ones that don't want to be good at their jobs, the ones that are just there for a paycheck. Those are the ones that need to be forced out. But whether you're a different sex, orientation, religion is completely irrelevant if you're doing your job well. And I've, I know, I've had all of the above next to me on fires and scenes that I've been proud and I would trust my life with. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I tell people in the class that I am one of the most biased persons they're ever going to meet as a company officer, as a leader, and I'm biased against the sorry asses. And I have no problem with telling you you're sorry. And, and it's not out of hatred. It's not that I don't like you as a person. But at the end of the day, if one of my brothers or sisters goes down and you can't do your damn job and get them out of that situation, I'm biased against you. I have no use for you on my fire ground. And it's very open and frank. And like you said, once that mask goes on, pink, purple, red, white, black, yellow, does not matter. Nobody, no firefighter knows going to say, wait, send the white guy to get me or send, send the straight guy to come get me out of this situation. They're just going to be happy somebody's there and all I want is that person to have the skills, the knowledge and the ability to exit me out of that structure. I don't care what it takes. Exactly. Well, I couldn't agree more. I really couldn't. So it sounds like that's a, a amazing class as well. I'd love to attend both of them one day if I can find one that's going on around here or vice versa. I'll come up to you. Definitely. Yeah, anytime. Definitely anytime. And we we love to have you up here in Atlanta if you ever get the chance and and uh we'll definitely introduce you to as much as we can and, and uh we can go from there. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So I'm gonna to transition to some closing questions um that I like to ask after every interview. The first is is there a book that you love to recommend and it can be about what we've discussed or something completely different? I think out of, uh, and I think a lot of firefighters, I, I, there's two books I all have, I've read uh, and that, that I truly enjoy. And obviously one of them is uh, Extreme Ownership by uh, Jocko. Uh, I always mess up his last name, but um, Extreme Ownership is one, well, like that's it. <laughs> uh, an extremely uh, open, honest look at um you know, if you own something and and you own your leadership, you own your, I always, you know, obviously I translate everything in the firehouse. 
for that period of time that I'm in charge, that's mine. I own that. And it's amazing to me that when you, when you own something, how much better care you take of it. And I've always taken that approach, you know, uh, when it comes to my fire station or the way I communicate with people, those type of things. And then it's kind of an old, older book. And I know uh, a lot of guys have read it and some of our young guys, I would tell you to read it because it's a, it's a fascinating story. And that's a report from Major Company 82. And it's just one of my all time favorites. I remember reading it as a, as a young kid, as, you know, as a 17 year old uh, kid coming into the fire service, and, you know, and learning about the fire service and reading these just unbelievable stories of uh, the FDNY uh, by Dennis Smith. And now as, you know, obviously a little bit older, Knowing members uh, with that incredible uh, organization of uh, FDNY and getting to you know train side by side with you know guys like Ray McCormack and it's it's absolutely amazing to me uh, what I learned from those guys uh, and I always tell people that I don't care what subject matter I'm teaching or who or where I'm teaching at or who I'm teaching with I typically walk out of every class knowing a lot more than I ever gave. And it comes from everything from the 20-year-old firefighter to the 50-year veteran of FDMY. And it's it's just a true privilege and honor to to meet and know and, and work side-by-side these guys. And um, just, you know, sometimes not really teach at all, just kind of, you know, act like a student is, is uh, one of the greatest rewards that uh, you can ever receive. But, yeah, those two books are absolutely incredible. And I recommend them. Yeah, yeah. And I still, you know, and I, I need, I know I have a copy of it somewhere. The report, I, I'd read that again right now because I said it, I hadn't read it for several years. I, I need to find my copy and read it again. That's how, that's how much I enjoyed that book. Yeah, very, very well, very well written. Um, okay, so what about the same question, but a, a movie and or a documentary? kind of old school uh one of the first firefighter movies and i still watch it if it comes on and i think i have the dvr somewhere if i had a dvr player anymore but uh um the tyrant inferno <laughs> it's still the old classic 70s disaster flick but if you really take a step back and watch some of the fire scenes it's it's pretty incredible what they uh were actually doing uh even back then with some of their fire scenes so yeah, that's one that I uh, truly uh, still enjoy watching when it comes on, and probably the most incredible uh, documentary. And, and uh, forgive me for not knowing their names. Was the um, I believe they were the French. They were doing a documentary on FDNY, and they just happened to be at Ground Zero. They were on a gas leak when the first plane struck. Yeah, the, the Norday brothers. Yes, it, it, it's 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 still um, heart wrenching, knowing you know because you obviously know the end result of that entire that entire day. But uh, if if you know if people have never seen that, um, they need to find it and and look at it because it gives you an unbelievable perspective uh, of what they were a part of and a witness to. Uh, totally by chance, uh, and to see that first plane go in, why our, our brothers were just at a standard gas leak investigation call, and how that may change in a matter of just literally seconds is 
eye-opening, heartbreaking all at the same time. And I think the other one that Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's such a powerful movie, and, and I don't know if you ever saw the the second thing they did was the um, the parachutings. They did like a three series or three episode Netflix special, and again, a very different perspective. But now our French brothers and sisters were the responders on that horrendous attack as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I tell you another one. I think that for for author development or for for leaders that is. Uh, I use it in, in, in another program that I do on uh, making training great again. Is uh, any story not not the Hollywood version of Captain Sullenberger when he landed that plane on the Hudson River, but the National Geographic version where they you know you hear the audio, uh, his transmissions. How I'm still amazed every time I've li- I listen to it of how calm this person is telling the control tower that mm, I'm about to land this plane in the Hudson River. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's one of the statements that I use in, in that program is a, is a statement he made about his, his training, his education and his experience all paid off. 42 years of all that paid off in that one moment. And uh, you use that as a reference Absolutely. Well, you fall to your level of training, and he took his job so seriously that he drilled and drilled and drilled. Yeah. And you can take that with every single firefighter in this country, because most days are good days. But when that bad day comes, do you have the training, the experience, and the education to make that bad day a good day? And that's exactly what he was able to do on that day, is take a complete unforeseeable incident and save all those lives and do something that nobody ever thought could be done. Yeah. Well, especially if you are being pressured by another, you know, division to not do what you're about to do, but do something different, which would have resulted in everyone being killed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely amazing to me. It's one of the most amazing stories. I think, uh, uh, I've ever heard it probably the most amazing story I ever hear in my lifetime what he was able to accomplish that that after that morning. Absolutely. Well, I'd love to try and get him one day. We'll see. I'll probably have to be a lot more uh, (laughs) more famous than I am now. But but yeah, I think, think like you said, from a training point of view, an ownership point of view, uh, a mental resilience point of view, I think there would be such incredible carryover to the jobs that we all do. Oh, yeah. It's such a direct relationship to the fire service. Uh, his story is and, and his references to his training um, and how he was able to use that that day. And that, that to me is still just uh, incredible. And it's an incredible reference for our officers and our training and our, and our instructors throughout this uh, country. Uh, take me a look at that story and, and you can really reference a lot of little things in there of how that translates right to what we do every single day in our lives. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'd mentioned obviously wanting to get him. One of my next questions is, is there a person that you recommend coming on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? I tell you what, they're um, being extremely lucky and extremely blessed to be able to work and teach at at places uh, throughout the United States. There are 
I could give you a list about 10 miles long of guys I've, I've gotten to know over the last five, six years, especially, um, one of the most motivational people. And that, even though I've heard some of his programs three or four times, if I know he's speaking or I'm at, um, I'm, you know, I help him teach down in Pensacola Beach quite a bit as Chief Kurt Isaacson. Um, he, if you are looking for uh, a little motivation that day, that's the guy you want to listen to and he'll make you want to jump up and go set something on fire just so you can put it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we got to set something on fire right now. Yeah, he, he was the... He, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. He was the keynote speaker, spoker, the keynote speaker at the Orlando <laughs> Fire Conference the, this year. So I did actually see him speak back in February. Yeah, yeah. I actually uh, drove up to, and, you know, me and Kurt are friends, and uh, he brings me down to Pensacola Beach uh, several times every year to teach at some of his conferences. And um, I'll sit through his class, even though I'm like, yeah, I've heard this class 10 times, but I love one of the things I really enjoy is watching how the other people in the audience respond to him. And you can see guys go, yeah, oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And a, a true, uh, true passion for what uh, all of us do in the American Fire Service and in public, and you can relate that to just day to day public safety. Uh, him and his wife do a program together that's incredible, and so very special individual with a lot, um, a lot of talent when it comes to the American Fire Service, and not just from a speaking standpoint, but just overall job knowledge is just impressive of what he's done to make himself the leader he is today and what he's doing throughout the uh, panhandle of Florida right now. Yeah, I don't know his conference is supposed to be very good as well. Yeah, I mean, what I'm looking forward to December, that's with the uh, next big conferences, first, uh, uh, the second week of December with the um, high-rise operations conference that he does. He brings in guys um, like Bill Gustin and Ray McCormack and Dave McGrail out in Denver, who is uh, the guru of high-rise firefighting. And uh, what he's accomplished with that conference is is mind-boggling, considering we've blown up the standpipe at the Hilton Hotel on more than one occasion. They keep letting us come back and and and, and drag hose to their hotel, and you've got, you know, 400 firefighters running around in full turnout gear dragging hose throughout the whole the entire hotel. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, no, that's something I definitely want to get to one day. All right. Well, then, so the last question before we kind of reiterate where we can find you, um, what do you do to decompress when you're not teaching these days? Uh, I think uh, in, in all reality, one of my biggest, which is it almost seems odd sometimes, is actually working on other programs uh, as well because I'm, I'm constantly <sighs> – I don't think I'm good enough sometimes. So I'm always looking to try to be a little bit better at, at what I do and just sharing that message. I'm always looking at for more information and, and listening and learning from others. And then outside of that, obviously anytime I get to spend with my family is always a decompression mode and, uh, playing golf is just, you know, again, you're not thinking about anything else, but that stupid little white ball that will not go where you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> See, golf has the opposite effect. <laughs> <laughs> I just get angry when I play golf, so there's nothing decompressing about it for me. <laughs> and it's funny because I hear guys say the same thing. Oh, I just get mad. I throw my clubs and I, I'm living for that. You know, I usually have like four good shots in 18 holes. So if I get four good shots, I'm like, yes, I can come back. I'm going to be the greatest golfer ever. <laughs> so, <laughs> and 
it never comes out that way, but it's, um, it's quiet. You're not talking about the job. You're not talking about training. You're not talking about anything. It's a, the golf at hand and, um, when the beer cards come back around. So yeah, it's a great decompression. Excellent. All right. Well then, so just to, to reiterate, so your email is toddedwards6 at yahoo. Facebook is the draw yard and baking, not baking barriers. That would be a cooking one. Bra- <laughs> breaking barriers. Um, so is there anywhere else that people can reach out to you? You want Instagram or any of those other ones? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on the Twitter. Uh, and that's to the Todd Edwards at Battalion 5C. And I do a little bit every now and then on Instagram. I had to get rid of the Snapchat because guys were sending me videos. I didn't, you know, they shouldn't be sending. <laughs> <laughs> so I still do the Instagram thing as well. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you. It's been pretty much two hours of uh, great conversation. I know we had a couple of technical um, issues at the beginning, but I think we overcame it just doing the phone one instead. But just so much information. I mean, that's what you talk about being a, a perpetual student. I'm so lucky to be able to ask the questions on these and, and then ultimately learn myself. But there's so much, there's so many things you talked about today that I personally didn't know. And I hope I'm kind of an aggressive in knowledge hungry firefighter. So I know that a lot of people listening are going to get so much out of this conversation as well. Well, I'm glad. And I hope uh, everybody's listening. Uh, just to kind of reiterate that one key point about all, all we did today was really graze what this program really introduces. And there's so many more details um, that we can provide people and and hopefully educate more of our firefighters, you know, in a, in a standard class that we have that interaction uh, with the students. And um, in, in some cases, we have self-advocates actually attend the program with us. And that's a, that's a very eye-opening event, uh, especially if you've never had the opportunity to talk with or or uh, meet somebody who has Down syndrome. And it's, uh, again, very eye-opening for, for firefighters um, to have these experiences. And it doesn't matter, big city, small town, um, those those interactions uh, can happen on any given day, and it's up to us to make sure that we have that understanding. Absolutely. All right, well, well thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. James, I do. I, I truly, truly uh, appreciate you allowing me uh, this time, and, and I uh, look forward to uh, uh, hopefully working with you again in the future.